calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview show where we sit down with the best, brightest, most notable minds in the games industry. And today I am extremely honored to be uh, joined by one of the best, the brightest, and the most notable of them all, Warren Spector. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Warren is the creator of Ultima Underworld, legendary game, Deus Ex, top five game of all time, in my opinion. Uh, Epic Mickey was was uh, near and dear to your heart, a big part of your career. And uh, System Shock as well, which you have since returned to. We'll be talking about all of that. So, Warren, I want to hop in the time machine with me and come back. <laughs> and I want to start with, uh, you know, we're going tr- to trace the career of how you got here. And you, if I have it right, when you were a kid, you wanted to be a film critic. Is that correct? Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist. But... Uh, when I got a little bit older, uh, I, I passed through a lawyer phase, which I'm embarrassed about now. Uh, but uh, once I got to high school, I, I turned into the world's biggest film geek. Uh, I was a, a seven-day-a-week movie guy. Nice. Uh, I would go to at least one movie literally every single day of the week and uh, thought for a while I was going to make movies, but realized very early on uh, as I made my little, my little eight-millimeter movies that I had no talent. Uh, and so film criticism and history seemed like the way to go. So. Well, I'm sure uh, seeing movies every day probably kept you out of trouble, at least. Uh, well, it kept me out of trouble, and it gave me this pasty face, you know. So uh, <laughs> I'm in the club. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it worked out pretty well for me. So I have to ask you about your college thesis at Texas. Uh, it was a critical history of Warner Brothers cartoons. You did your research. I'll give I, you that. I did my best. So that's, first of all, that sounds amazing. If I'm a professor, professor, I absolutely want to read that. That had to be fun. Please tell me about this. And, and did it go over well? Uh, well, when I was in grad school, uh, I actually uh, team taught an animation history class with some other folks. And so I was, uh, I was pretty up on the history of cartoons, and I never outgrew loving cartoons. I mean, I, I, started, I started watching them when I was, you know, I don't even know, probably two or three years yeah. old and just never stopped. And uh, particularly loved, uh, you know, Disney and uh, Warner Brothers. And so when it came time to, to pick a, a topic for my thesis, it kind of seemed like a natural to, to write about cartoons. There were... There were things about cartoons that I didn't think other people had spotted before, the way characters developed over time and all sorts of geeky academic stuff that nobody cares about. But uh, no one at that point, this is how long ago it was, no one at that point had actually written a history of Warner Brothers cartoons. Huh. And no one had put together a complete list of every cartoon from you know, the, the, the late 20s up until, the, you know, what was it, 1980 when I wrote that thing. And so I put together the very first complete list of Warner Brothers cartoons. And then a guy named Jerry Beck, who's a world-renowned animation historian, 
beat me to publication. I was going to publish it, and he came out with his before I could come out with mine. So, uh, I, so I got beaten to the. Did point. you have to get that vetted by the professor before you did it, or do you just do it and spring it on the professor? No, you you have to get it approved. <laughs> your, your topic, you know, your first three chapters, you you have to get it approved. But luckily, was I it had a tough some, sell? No, not at all. Actually, uh, at, at the time, cartoons, you know, were all considered avant garde. Yeah, and you know, very. Uh, very much uh, part of uh, film art. So it wasn't a tough sell, but I'll I, I tell you, it's, a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, when you write a master's thesis, there's a very strict format you have to, you have to put it in. The margins have to be just the right size, and the, the uh, page numbers have to be in just the right place. And I got it back from the printers, my, my copy, and everything was wrong. Oh, no. Everything was wrong. And it was the last day to submit it. So I said, well, what the heck? What do I have to lose? So I brought it over to the administration building and took it to the, the woman whose job it was to take a template and put it on every page and make sure that your margins were right and your numbers were in the right place. And I knew I was going to fail. But she opened it up, and she looked at the title, and she started laughing, and she closed it and said, you pass. <laughs> so she never even used the template on the thing. So uh, I got really lucky on that one. Did you, did I, I, before I move off of this topic, because I think this is fascinating, uh, do your parents, uh, are they supportive of you doing the, when they find out about this thesis? Or do they think, you're wasting our money? <laughs> well, I think, I think when I was going to see movies seven day a, days a week, they thought they were wasting their money. Uh, so uh, I don't think they ever, they ever quite got over it. They wanted me to be an orthodontist and make movies on the weekends. That was their big plan for my life. And uh, I, the, I kind the, of The dentist them. who moonlights as a filmmaker. Exactly. <laughs> it sounds like something in a film somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, so when did you start getting interested in video games then? Well, I started getting interested in video games. Uh, I, I don't know that I could give you a year, but uh, you know, I got an Atari 2600. Actually, it was before that. What am I talking about? Uh, you know, I saw Pong in a in yeah. a, a bar. You know? Sure. And uh, well, it was probably a restaurant because I was too young to go into bars at the time. But you know, sunk a lot of quarters into that and uh, did the the whole arcade thing. And my folks got me some knockoff. Pong game, you know, that had uh, that had Pong and some controllers and a, a gun for a shooting game, <laughs> and so uh, I was I was pretty sucked in by that. But it really started when I got an Atari twenty six hundred and played Adventure for the first time, and I was I was done. Makes sense. We've all got that game. We've yeah. all got that. that I have spot. It, I got it again for for Christmas. I got a, <laughs> a little great. thing like this big that that plays sixty oh, the, the, Atari the TV, games. the plug and play TV thing. You don't yeah. even have to plug it in. It's just a standalone. Oh, nice. It's got it's got like sixty Atari <laughs> games on it. Uh, Richard Garriott was in here. He was kind enough to do this show as well. Fellow Austin game developer. Sure. Uh, and he told me that he wouldn't mind if I told you that, in his opinion, the Ultimas that he worked on with you were the best ones. Wow. How, uh, how does that make you feel to hear that? Well, uh, honored, obviously. You know, it's, uh, he's done some pretty good work. It was uh, Ultima 4 that, that convinced me that video games could be more than just you know, killing monsters and saving princesses. Uh, uh, he had a pretty big impact on on my life in a variety of ways. Yeah, how uh, how did you end up with at Origin and, and subsequently Looking Glass? Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, I'm always curious. I mean, that because that was your start, really, right? As, sure. a, as a professional. Well, I you know I started working on tabletop games uh, at Steve Jackson Games, and then went to TSR and worked on a bunch of of uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, stuff. So that was that was really kind of my start, mm. but. Uh, Richard gave me my first shot in the uh, digital game world. And uh, how that happened was, um, you know, I used to go to science fiction conventions all the time. And, and once I was working at TSR, I, w- I would be a guest at all these conventions. And Richard and I ended up on a panel together. And I was talking about uh, AD&D, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Sure. He was talking about Ultima Five, the game he was working on. And I was sitting there thinking... Wow, we you know we've got all these TSR video games coming out that I don't like very much, and this guy's talking about this genius game he's working on, and he did Ultima Four, and it's and we started hitting it off. You know, we were on a panel together, and just you know I was finishing his sentences and he was finishing mine, and uh, a while later, it was probably uh, you know a few months later, 
I got a call uh, in my office, actually, at TSR, asking <laughs> if I was interested in an associate producer job. At call Olympia. me on my home phone. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I jumped at it, you know. I mean, I, the opportunity to work with Rich and the opportunity to make uh, computer games at the time, I, I was playing them obsessively more than I was playing the, the tabletop role-playing stuff by that point. Uh, you know, the opportunity was there, and I jumped at it. So Ultima Underworld is it's it's known it's the it's I feel like it's uh, almost kind of a like hipster hipster type knowledge where it's you know if you know about it but is Ultima Underworld one of the most underrated games ever? You know I worked on it so I'm not sure you want to say <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the one to say um, but uh, probably yeah maybe. Maybe not underrated, but underappreciated, that's, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's more what I'm going for. I just feel like it doesn't get its due, for, especially now. I mean, it's still the ideas it put forth and the, the game systems it put forth are still very relevant now. Yeah. You're you still know, iterating off of them. I, I am. Uh, you know, my, my entire career, it's, it's kind of pathetic, but my entire career has been about trying to recreate the feeling I had in 1978, the first time I played Dungeons & Dragons. And, uh, the you know, Ultima VI and, and Ultima Seven were... We're kind of steps along that path, but if you look at Underworld and Underworld Two and System Shock and Thief and Deus Ex, and they're all like in a, even Epic Mickey, they're all kind of in, in a line trying to empower players to tell their own stories a little bit better every time. And Underworld was was really kind of seminal in that it was it was if not the first, certainly one of the first of what we call immersive simulations. Yeah. You know? Do you remember where the idea for it came from? Uh, yeah, the idea for that came right from Paul Nurath, uh, who was uh, a guy I had worked with at Origin. He did a game called Space Rogue, another underappreciated game, by the way. Um, and he and I worked on that together. And uh, one day, he, uh, he came to Origin with uh, a demo of a real-time, first-person perspective fully textured 3D dungeon. And I remember standing around with a bunch of Origin folks, and and they were all looking at it going, yeah, that's kind of cool. And I looked at it and said, no, don't you realize the world just changed? It's, it's, everything's different now. And uh, I got the opportunity to work with, with Paul on that. But really, it, it started with that, that tech demo. Uh, and then uh, a story. It wasn't even supposed to be uh, an Ultima story uh, huh. originally. And uh, Richard is the one who suggested that we attach the Ultima name to it just to make sure people notice. Yeah, prop it up. Yeah, exactly. You know, help it find its audience. And uh, I think that probably worked out pretty well. Seems like it. And you're, you're still you're working with Paul today, and we'll, we'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, so then System Shock. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it, where, where does System Shock come from? Because that's, it's still that... There's not much, not no hipster situation there. That's everybody knows System Shock, and everybody should. Uh, System Shock actually came from two different directions at once. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Paul again, Paul Nerath, you know, again, boy, talk about an underappreciated guy. Um, but Paul and a guy named Doug Church, yeah. secret master of gaming. I've been trying to make that guy famous for the last 25 he, he, years. He stays in the shadows. I know. He's like Garrett the Thief. Fittingly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, they were kind of tired of working on uh, fantasy games, which, which we had all been doing for a while, and were working on their own end on, on a, a science fiction game in the spirit of, of Underworld. And at the same time, I was working on a, a thing I called Alien Commander. In fact, I, I recently came across the original design spec mm. for, for Alien Commander, which was my response to being tired of making games about guys who wear plate <laughs> armor and swing big swords and all that. Um, and so uh, because we were all you know, buddies and because we had worked together on, on several games by that point, uh, we, we just sort of looked at each other and went, hey, wait a minute. You got chocolate in my peanut butter, you know, <laughs> and uh, decided to to work together on what became System Shock. So uh, that and that, of course, does does great, and you're you're on fire at that point. But you, you end up leaving Looking Glass. I'm curious. I'm curious why you decided to leave because I mean that that place that place was I mean certainly now regarded as as absolutely legendary. Well, let's be clear. Actually, I was still at Origin. 
Still okay. Still yeah, at Origin. I was at Origin. Origin uh, published uh, Underworld, Underworld Two, and System Shock, and uh, I was working out of Austin, Texas. Paul kept on trying to get me to move to Boston, and I kept on. I probably shouldn't say that. Richard will be mad at Paul now. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, you know, I was working with them uh, on on those games, um, but I was still at Origin at the time. And I left Origin to join Looking Glass a little okay. bit later on, uh, right after, when was that? It was like 1996, I yeah. guess. Pre-Thief. Yeah, well, it was, Thief you, was, you Thief was kind of in the middle of its development cycle. Okay. Um, I came into Thief in the middle year of its three-year development cycle, when it went from uh, Dark Camelot to, uh, what, to, to Thief. Uh, the dark project. Yeah. Uh, so I got I got the chance to work with uh, with Doug and Paul again uh, on Thief at that point, um, and it, I I did leave Looking Glass at, at one point. Uh, there were a couple of reasons for it. Uh, I was actually still working out of Austin because I yeah, refused it's to Looking work Glass Austin. Austin, right? Right. I built a, I built an office uh, for Looking Glass down there, and. Um, Okay, let let me be completely honest. Looking sure. Glass never had a lot of money, and uh, there there came a point where uh, there wasn't really money to have an Austin office. Paul gotcha. just Paul said, you know, yeah, we don't really have enough money. We just wanted you to work here. And, <laughs> uh, I went don't, and um, you know, worked on Bob Costas baseball for a while, <laughs> and worked on. Uh, a, a science fiction game called, interestingly enough, Junction Point, uh, <laughs> and spent a lot of time just trying to raise money. And ultimately, I just said, Paul, you know, shut down my studio. It'll be fine. I'll find another deal. I'll keep everybody employed. Um, save yourself. <laughs> you so know? even th- so, you just you really weren't interested in moving to the East Coast then? if Because it sounds like you, know, you were happy working with, with all these, these guys. Oh, I loved them. But, I mean, you, yeah, you've, you've managed to put down uh, just unshakable roots in Austin f- to this day for your entire career. Yeah, you'd have to blast me out of Austin. <laughs> I, it would take an atomic bomb, I think. Um, yeah, I love those guys. I, I loved them then. I, I love them now. I, I spent half of my time at GDC hanging out with those guys, you know. Um, but uh, I grew up on the East Coast, and I said I'll never live any place cold ever again. Yeah, you're from New York, right? I'm from New York. Yeah. I lived in Chicago for five years. I spent two years in Wisconsin. That was enough. I want warmth. Fair so, enough. Uh, so I, I stay down there. In my opinion, Looking Glass is the closest thing the game industry has to the Beatles of, of uh, game, game studios and that... It was a relatively short period of time that they were active, yeah. but their work is hugely influential, and it's still revered now. You, yeah. What do you think of that? Of my opinion of that? I, I think Looking Glass has been incredibly influential, and I'm, I'm proud of them and proud of, of my part in that. Um, I remember when, when Looking Glass finally did shut down, uh, everybody you know, at Looking Glass was obviously upset, and, and rightly so. But everybody uh, in the, the world of, of gaming was upset about it, or at least everybody who knew about Looking Glass. You know, there was a lot of uh, crying and rending of garments and yeah. gnashing of teeth and everything. And I was just telling everybody, no, no, this is, this is actually a good thing. Because it, Looking Glass was this, this tiny company that, you know, we used to think of ourselves as like the kings of the cult classics, and and we did we worked on these you know influential games but it was just us and when when looking glass shut down what i knew was going to happen it was going to be like a dandelion you know that you blow in the wind and all of a sudden all these seeds were going to go out there and seed the entire industry and instead of there Levine, being one place exactly you, we uh, I guess Doug, I don't know where, Doug stays quiet. We don't know where he, where he, he was at Valve for a while. He was at Valve for a while, yes. That was more recent. Uh, Doug, Doug became a, a Ronin, you know. He would, <laughs> he would go around and help everybody else do their thing. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. But, um, uh, you know, Irrational came out of that. Uh, it, it just so much came out of, of the end of Looking Glass that at the end of the day, I actually think, the game industry is genuinely better for it, 
and we, we genuinely see different kinds of games now uh, than we used to. Uh, you know, they're, they're even little looking glass tendrils at Bethesda. You know, they're, they're everywhere. We're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> uh, before I move to Ion Storm and Deus Ex, I've got to ask you about Thief because, in my opinion... Well, Thief 2, which I think you, you were not I had nothing the, but, to do with but, Thief 2. But Thief itself, I think Thief is the best stealth game. The, 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 I don't think stealth has ever been done better than in Thief. But does, the story goes that Thief 1, the Dark Project, you guys hedged your bet with the whole zombie, more action-y stuff towards the end in case, in case people didn't go for the whole you know, stealth, non-lethal thing. There was, is there anything to that? Uh, you know, not as much as you might think. <laughs> um, the, that team was adamant about focusing on stealth to the exclusion of everything else. In fact, I know, I know you, we're going to get to Deus Ex at some point, but a lot of the reason Deus Ex exists is because of the stubbornness, the appropriate stubbornness of the Thief team. Uh, you know, it's, there, there's a lot to the story of Deus Ex, but, but one of the things that really drove me was... Uh, a moment when I was I was playing Thief, an early build, and I, I just was not good enough as a as a sneak thief to get past some guards. And I went to the team and I said, "Let me, let me, let me fight these guys, please. Just let, <laughs> make me strong enough to fight these guys because I can't sneak past them." And everybody, it was like, no, it was it was no. it was like I I was boiling babies or something, you know. <laughs> and um, boy, I wish I hadn't said that out loud. Anyway. Um, they said, no, if, if we let you fight, no, that's what everyone will do. No one will right. sneak anymore. And I was convinced that they were wrong about that and that it was possible to make a game where you could fight or sneak. And I made a silent vow right then that I was going to show those guys that it was possible. I was going to build another team to <laughs> do that. And uh, that's one of the reasons Deus Ex exists. Out of my wow. frustration with this, this genius team of people I love, uh, who made Thief? So we got two great games out of out of Thief then Thief, Thief and Deus Ex. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yes, let's talk about Ion Storm now. The sort of next suck phase, it down next phase of your career. That was yeah. You. That was no. John. <laughs> so, that was um, not me. Apparently, you were all set to go make a Command and Conquer RPG for EA. God, you did your research until John. That's my job here. More, and I have like one job. That's it. Uh, until John Romero called you. So was it? And I mean, a, a Command and Conquer RPG sounds like a pretty good deal in that you know it's going to get big exposure. You know it's probably going to do well. You're probably going to get significant resources from a major publisher. So was John's offer just clearly something you couldn't refuse? Well, can I can I back up please, a little bit? Please, I, this is your story. Okay. I'm doing my best to shepherd it. De- Deus Ex actually started uh, earlier than that. It was it was around 1994 while I was still at Origin. Wow! Uh, I put together a pitch for a game called Troubleshooter, where you play you played uh, Jake Shooter, ex CIA, now private eye, who takes the jobs that his moral and ethical uh, ideas will let him take. You know, it's all very film noir. And um, a lot of the, the ideas that en- eventually ended up in Deus Ex started with that. I, I called it the real-world role-playing game. Hmm. And uh, Origin and EA weren't interested at all, which is probably a good thing. Cause <laughs> the, the, the technology at the time wouldn't have allowed me to make anything resembling yeah. the real world. Um, but, so I, I shelved that idea you know, and, and worked on a bunch of other stuff. And then... Uh, when uh, Looking Glass Austin shut down, when I when I told Paul just just save yourself, you know, uh, I did. I decided to do a startup, uh, and I had a contract, you know, to do the Command and Conquer role playing. Yeah. I can't believe you know that. It just I, I never talk about that because um, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to. It's but statute of limitations. We're good. Don't worry it's about public it. Public now, um, and there was this is this is true. People do not believe. When I when I say this, I had a pen poised over a contract, and the phone rang. Wow! And and it was John. That's like out of a movie. You're I about know. to sign, and all of a sudden the phone goes. Up. I know. And and uh, John said, uh, "I want you to join Ion Storm and make a game." 
And I said, I can't, John. I've, I've got a contract right here. I'm about to sign a contract. And he said, don't sign that contract. I'm driving to Austin tomorrow, and I'm going to change your mind. Wow. And he did. He drove down in his enormous Hummer, you know, I guess trying to make a, a big impression. But he drove down. Well, that was, that was post-id, John. I mean, that's... Yes. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And uh, he, he said, make the game of your dreams... You will get no creative interference at all. You will have the biggest budget you've ever had in your life and the biggest marketing budget you've ever had in your life. Who says no to that? Well, that, that definitely trumps the EA offer. I mean, how can it not? Right. I mean, this, that's an opportunity that never comes along. And here it was, you know, just dropped in my lap. And you, but you believed him, clearly. You didn't just think he was, you know, blowing smoke trying to get you to... To sign with him? Yeah. I mean, John is, is one of the, the genuinely good people he in is. this I've, business. I've I had mean, the pleasure of, of meeting him a few times. He, he loves games more than any other human in the world. Uh, he's just a, he's a good human. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know him well, but I had known him for a while. And, yeah, I trusted him. And, you know, he was making the game of his dreams at the time. Uh, and Tom Hall was getting to make the game of yeah, his Nacronox. dreams. And, and so I figured, why shouldn't I get my shot, you know? And the other thing, look, I mean, let's be realistic about this. What's the cost of failure in the game business? It's not like, you know, cancer isn't cured or world peace is, is you know, threatened. It's, you know, I, I Tens could always... Tens of millions of dollars, just money. And it's, I'm never going to work again, but yeah, <laughs> it's just money, you know? And so I figured, just take the risk. What the heck? So is that one... Is that one uh... When the, the idea comes back off the shelf and you start going to work at it again? Well, the idea came off the shelf. The <laughs> Command & Conquer roleplay game was going to be troubleshooter set in the world of Command & Conquer, okay? <laughs> Just to be clear. Um, but uh, the real-world role-playing role game, never that idea never died. So I, I got out the, the old troubleshooter pitch and you know sort of blew the dust off it. And, and uh, I had the remnants of my Looking Glass Austin team, and we just started uh, concepting things out. And... You know, one of the first things we realized was it, it was still not possible to, to recreate the real world. So we just sort of arbitrarily said, eh, it's 2052, right. you know. What's the world going to be like then? And well, that was, that was where we started. Uh, I was going to save this for later, but you've left me a perfect segue. It's, it's a little eerie that the Deus Ex, which shipped in 2000, didn't have the Twin Towers and it's New York skyline. You know, that's the result of a massive conspiracy. No. Um, <laughs> the Illuminati. The Illuminati are behind it. Yeah, Majestic 12. Um, no, it's an innocent mistake by an artist, and none of us caught it. Wow. It is, it is just an eerie coincidence. Uh, and it, uh, it kind of freaked me out uh, a year after we shipped when someone pointed it out to me. Because uh, I, I, even at that point, I hadn't noticed it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, when did you know that you had something special with Deus Ex? I mean, you clearly been, you'd had this great idea. It was your dream project. You'd been developing it. But and I suppose, you know, you guys, you never know if it's going to work until you make it. So right. at what point in the process, you know, it's such a systems-oriented game. There's so many, such player choice and such emergent gameplay. At what point, do you know early? Is it not till the end? When do you know it's something special? Well, um one answer to that is you never know. You never know. I mean, right before we shipped, I remember, you know, putting my head down on my desk and just saying, you know, if people compare our combat system to Half-Life at the time, you know, we're dead. If people compare our our stealth model to Thief, we're dead. If people compare our role playing to, you know, what was it, Baldur's Gate at the time, we're dead. But if people realize they can do everything, we're going to rule the world. So even the day before we shipped, I didn't know. Hmm. But the other way to think about it is um, early on, we, um, we built what we called proto, a proto-mission. You know, now, I guess, I guess you'd call it a vertical, vertical slice. slice. Yeah. yeah, at the time, that was not a term of art yet. Um, but we built uh, an entire mission uh, set in the White House uh, with all of our game systems hacked together as we had documented them. Um, and it, it wasn't great, but you could see the potential. You could, you could just sort of feel it, you know? And then about a year later, we had two complete missions uh, that were fully playable and not hacked, still as documented, so yeah. it wasn't the final <clears throat> stuff. 
but you could see that the potential was even greater. And then um, September 1999, we were done. <laughs> And, and theoretically ready to ship, except we weren't done. It, it was, the game was not good uh, at that point. Um, you could still see the potential, but I had a bunch of people come in and play the game. I mean, uh, you know, people who, if, from the, the game business. People don't, you trust. Yeah, don't ever tell your publisher you're doing this. But, <laughs> um, but I had them come in and play, and it, you know, a bunch of our games, they, they could all see the potential too. But a bunch of our game systems weren't working. Our skill system that, that I'd come up with was terrible. And the augmentation system wasn't working. And there, there was just a bunch of stuff that wasn't right. And uh, luckily, at that point, IDOS, our publisher, they really saw the potential. And they wanted the game to be right. And so yeah. they gave us another nine months. That's right, June 2000, right? June 2000. Yeah, the, June uh, 22nd, I believe. The, either the same day or a week out, like right right next to Diablo 2. Yes. As, as it so turned out. And another game that was kind of a big deal. Yes, uh, well, a, a bigger deal in most, <laughs> most ways that publishers care about. Uh, yeah, yeah, Diablo 2 crushed us. And, uh, you know, to be, to be completely frank, I... I had Diablo 2 on my hard drive until about six weeks ago. So, I believe uh, it. You know, that's, uh, that was quite a special game. Yeah. Uh, so it is, I've told you this before, I'm, this, I'm not saying this for the camera, I really think Deus Ex is a top five game of all time. I, it's, it is for me, certainly, and it's uh, it, my memories of it, and it's just it was such an experience. Uh, do you agree that it's, that it's Hall of Fame caliber, that it's, uh, it's one of the greatest ever? I All <laughs> I will say is that it is one of the games I'm most proud of. And I'm most proud of it because um, it demonstrably um, influenced other developers. Uh, with that, I'm, I'm really not going to name names here, but I've had several developers come to me and say uh, they redesigned the game they were working on when Deus Ex came out because, wow. because of having played it. Because or, they would have been embarrassed had they shipped after you. Or, or they, you know, I had others tell me that uh, they changed the way they thought about their own work after that, and their games uh, ever after were different because of it. So it, it really did have some influence, and, and that's not me bragging. That's it's just a fact. Yeah. So there's that. And also... Uh, how many games in the history of video gaming still matter 17 years after they came out? You know, it's not a long list, really. It, it really isn't, and so uh, I'm I'm uh, humbled by that. But it also says that we did something special. I mean, I had a very special team on that project, and and we did something special together. And so I I have to acknowledge that, or I'd be a total hypocrite. Is uh, is the when those developers that you're that you're very politely not naming is it that when those developers come to you is that the highest form of of uh, flattery I guess is this, is that the best feeling after a Deus Ex versus the sales or critical acclaim? Uh, I could care less about sales. Uh... I, I don't care much about reviews. I don't read reviews. Uh, my, my wife and my mother read the reviews and interviews and all that stuff and tell me when someone gives me a hard time. Um, so, no, those, those are not very important. Uh, influence is very important to me. Uh, I, I'm now old enough that the word legacy means something to me. My wife hates when I say that because it sounds like I'm an egomaniac. But, but it is, leaving something behind is very important to me. Um, the most important thing is is what I heard and still hear from players. Uh, the whole idea of Deus Ex was to recreate the feeling of playing Dungeons and Dragons and telling stories with your friends. Not being told a story, but telling stories with your friends and with a dungeon master. Yeah. And so in Deus Ex, what we were trying to do was lay out the skeleton of a story. Here's why what you're doing is important. And then let players own the minute to minute. And have every player finish the game having had a unique experience. And I heard from a lot of players. And so I, I know we succeeded at that. Players had unique experiences. And they did things that we didn't know could be done in the game that we made. I mean, I'll give you one specific example. Sure. Uh, a year after we shipped, uh, I, was, I was at the IDOS offices in San Francisco 
And uh, our lead tester, our lead publisher side tester, Charles Angel, was, was demonstrating the game for some IDOS. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Execs. Now, I mean, don't don't ask me why IDOS Execs needed a demo of a game that had shipped a year later (laughs) that had won a bunch of Game of the Year awards. But be that as it may, he was in a place I had played a hundred times. And he was in a place that I had watched other people play probably a thousand times. And it was a a place where there was a guard and an open doorway with uh, laser triggers that would set off an alarm. And then on the other side of this doorway, uh, two guards on patrol, a timed patrol. And three problems, three problems, okay? And I saw this guy moving an explosive barrel here and a little explosive barrel there, and then he backed up and hid and got out the pistol, the weakest weapon in the game, and with one shot solved all three of those problems. And I just fell on the floor because I knew for a... Well, I didn't know for a fact, but I assumed that no one on planet Earth had ever tried that before. And I worked on the game, (laughs) and I was watching him set this up thinking, is that going to work? Is that going to work? And it did. You know, that, that tells me that we made a game where players could solve problems their own way, you know. And so, so that's when things get really exciting. When, when listening to players have a dialogue about the game that isn't just about how they killed a boss or how they saved a princess, you know. So uh, you mentioned, you, you know, you were, John Romero offered you unlimited resources and time. And so I'm just curious... Was anything left on the cutting room floor? With oh. ASX? Like anything, anything, <laughs> there anything that you wanted, I should say. Not, you know, I'm sure you tried things out that didn't work, but was there anything that, that you wanted in the game that didn't get in? Okay. I am a kitchen sink designer. Okay. I, I'm a big believer that uh, the way you make a game is you get a big slab of marble and then you start slicing off the stuff that doesn't look like the statue you want to make. Yeah. Okay. And and so there was all sorts of stuff that I wanted in the game that didn't end up in there. I mean, there was there was a, a war uh, between the Russo-Mexican alliance uh, and the the, uh, the the free country of Texas. Uh, the Austin, my hometown, was going to be invaded by by Russo-Mexican armies. I mean, there was no way to do that in a game for crying out loud. And uh, we were going to have a raid on a FEMA camp where you had to free 2,000 prisoners. I mean, there was no way to do that. There was all sorts of stuff that I wanted in the game that uh, the lead designer, Harvey Smith, and some of my other designers, notably like Steve Powers, they would browbeat me and say, we can't build this. We can't do this. And finally, I gave in and, and you know, we, we cut a bunch out hmm. of the game. Just a bunch. Interesting. So uh, later, Deus Ex Invisible War sequel mm-hmm. comes out. It's good, but it wasn't as well received as the original. Um, do you is that an underappreciated project to you, or do you have any regrets about it? Um, I think it's underappreciated is probably a pretty good word. I think it's it's a better game than people give it credit for. Um, it was following a game that a lot of people just really, really loved. Uh, I think topping topping ourselves would have been a little rough. Um, I, I think also we, we made some mistakes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We were trying to reach a broader audience. Deus Ex sold pretty well. Um, you know, I mean, at this point, I think it's probably sold about 2 million copies, you know, uh, which is good, not, not great. Um, but we wanted to reach a larger audience. 
And um, we, we took some input from our publisher that we probably shouldn't have. Uh, I think things like Unified Ammo, that was probably a mistake. Yeah. Uh, putting the, the hero in a purple jumpsuit. I mean, what were we thinking? You know, so we, we made some mistakes. There's no doubt about it. The, in, a, in one sense, probably the biggest mistake we made was focusing on the console version, uh, frankly, to the exclusion of the PC version. Uh, the PC version we, we did very, very late. And so I think our core audience, the PC gamers, uh, had, it were justified in, in giving us a hard time. Yeah, because that, that, that was uh, the original Xbox. Uh, yeah. And, and there were, you know, that just had such memory limitations compared to a PC at the time. That, yep. That, was, that were tangible when you played the game. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 ramp, the major ramification of that was our maps got much smaller. And one of the things that made Deus Ex work was we could put you in a position where you could look around and, and see that you were at a choice point. I mean, it, it's, it sounds crazy and, and you know, uh, almost sort of reductionist in terms of design, but we wanted you to know, hey, you're at a place where, where you could go, you know, full-on, you know, fighting or you could sneak around. Or, but you have a choice to make here. And for that to, to work, you had to have, you know, vistas. Mm-hmm. And the first game, we were able to pull that off because we had PCs to play with. And the second game, the memory limitations meant that our maps got much smaller. And so a lot of what made Deus Ex work uh, went away. You wouldn't think something that simple could be so profound, but it really was. So, and then uh, after Deus Ex Invisible War, your Ion Storm Austin team also got to make the first Thief game since Looking Glass shut down, which was... Uh, Thief Deadly Shadows was the name of it. Is it yeah. Remember that yeah. correctly? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I reviewed that game for back at Xbox Magazine. It was, that was received very well. Uh, yeah. The most controversial thing you guys did with that was to default the camera to to third person. <laughs> but thankfully, you could you could hit a button and go go back into first uh, first person classic Thief style. Right. Any any good or bad memories of that project? Um, well, you know, it was. Uh, it was interesting in that it uh, came together very late. Let's just say, let me choose my words very carefully. Um, no, it, it came together very, very late, and so the last you know three months of that project were a death march. Uh, that's that's mostly what I remember uh, of Thief: Deadly Shadows. Um, I also remember that uh, who was it? Jordan Thompson? I think it was Sh- Jordan. Shalebridge Cradle. Shalebridge Cradle yep, the was best mission. I, I unbelievable think, mission. I think that was the best thief mission ever in wow. any of the three games. And Even better than uh, uh, rooftops or. Uh, I, I thief, think thief it two, was. I think that was. I think that 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 was the scariest and That's best true. thief mission ever. Yeah. Uh, and and so there were some pretty high points there. Uh, I think uh, I did a pretty poor job of managing that team. I was pretty focused on on Invisible War and and I'm just running the studio. I mean, the studio at that point was. I mean, it, two teams, it, it right? was it was two teams and about a hundred people, which at the time seemed like a big team to me. No, no longer does that seem like a big team. Um, but I was I was a little too focused on on um, running the studio, uh, and you, you know, it, it, to be fair, at that point, the, you know, Invisible War was the first time Harvey Smith directed a game, and Thief: Deadly Shadows was the first time Randy Smith uh, directed a game, and I. I should have given them more support. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll own uh, my, my poor mentoring of those guys uh, as, as part of the problem. But uh, uh, really, like I said, Thief Crunch was pretty dramatic there at the end. So eventually the uh, Ion Storm Austin ends. The entire Ion Storm sort of situation came to an end. Yep. Uh, and, but not long after, Junction Point because that's that's the next move uh and disney comes along now before i get to epic mickey itself you're a huge disney fan you, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview with uh watching hard how is there how, a camera that can get my socks oh i don't know if uh yeah maybe maybe sean over here yeah. our producer can he is wearing disney socks today if you can get in on that Right We've now, got Mickey and Donald and Goofy it's the back whole here. crew right there. Okay, so do not do not doubt this man's this man's enthusiasm. 
Uh, where where does that Disney enthusiasm come from, Warren? Uh, it comes from like two year old Warren. You know, one of the first movies I ever saw was Sleeping Beauty, hmm. and. Uh, the you know when Maleficent turns into a dragon, I had nightmares for for years after that. Uh, Walt Disney loved scaring kids, and he scared me, and uh, I I loved it. It was the most delicious scare in the world. <laughs> How uh, do you go to Disney World or Disneyland a lot? I haven't been there since uh, Junction Point shut down. Honestly, it's a little too painful mm. for me. Uh, but I used to go a lot. What, what's yeah. uh? What's your earliest memory of one of the parks? Did you get to go as a kid? Uh, you know, amazingly, I didn't. My my folks were not big Disney fans, and so I was. Uh, oh God, how I was! I was actually pretty old before I went. Uh, and my my most vivid memory. Uh, oh my gosh, my most vivid memory of. Uh, well, no, I have two really vivid memories, but one, one of them was. Um, in the 30th anniversary of Disneyland, I, I turned 30 the same year Disneyland did. We were both born in 1955. And um, they were giving out prizes for the 30th person through the turnstiles and the 300th person and the 3,000th yeah. person. And I was the 3,000th, I can't even say it, 3,000th person through the turnstiles uh, during that anniversary summer uh, on that particular day. Yeah, And alarms started going off and I was terrified. Oh, and no. a, a guy, you know, one of the, the guys who's like sweeping up says in this goofy voice, that's Mr. 3000. That's Mr. <laughs> 3000. And he, he sort of broomed me over. He swept me over to a prize redemption center and I got a Mickey Mouse watch that I still have. And uh, that day, I... I'm convinced that there were secret cameras, you know, following me and my friends around that day because we didn't wait on a line ever. I mean, nice. it's like we would get to a, a ride and there'd be no line. The, the seas it was, parted. <laughs> yeah, it was magical, you know. And here's here's the, the the most remarkable thing of all. I took a bunch of pictures. This was in the days of film. Sure. Okay, I took a bunch of pictures and I had my camera set wrong. And so, so I assumed that none of the pictures would come out. And I, over the course of many years, I have no idea what happened to that roll of film. It's gone. It's it's lost in the, the you know to the the seas of time. And years later, I found a roll of film in the bottom of my closet and got it developed. And it was all the pictures from that day, and wow. every one of them had come out. That's awesome. Every one of them. That's it was so great. It was unbelievable. So, yeah. do you have any do you have any pro tips for for doing Disneyland properly? You know, you've been a lot of times. Are there any, any secrets uh, we need to know? Well, get there early, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, have a plan. Always go in with a plan. Know, know where you're going to go and when. You know, uh, that's, that's probably the most important thing. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in taking the, take the behind-the-scenes tour. It, it's remarkable. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I, I got to give people tours of Disneyland when we were promoting Epic Mickey. Yeah. And that's a real thrill. Walk, f- find a way to walk around the parks with an Imagineer sometime. Hmm. That's, that's my best pro tip. It's, it's not <laughs> easy to pull off, but if you can, that's a remarkable experience. Have you ever been in Club 33? I have been in Club 33. I, I've been in there three times now. And um, you know, here's, here's the sad thing. Uh, the first time I was in there, they, they actually have Club 33 you know, paraphernalia, yeah. right? And they have uh, a gold ring. And I wanted one so badly. Oh, man, I wanted one. And, and I asked, can I, can I buy one of those? Because you can buy hats. And sure. I've got hats and I've got shirts and, you know, Club 33 stuff. But I wanted one of those rings. And uh, the guy who was selling stuff said, it's, it's $5,000. And I said, I will write you a check right now. And he said, I can't sell it to you. Only members can have the ring. And so I said, how do I become a member? And you just have to apply and you get on a waiting list. And about a month after Disney shut down Junction Point, I got my membership. I got got off the list. And uh, at that point, uh, I was... I was frankly heartbroken. I mean, there's no other word when when Junction Point went away, 
And so I didn't become a member, and I don't have the ring, and oh. it's all very sad, and now it's too late. <laughs> it's oh. never too late. It's never too, you're right. It's never, it's never too, too late. It's I, never too late. You're right, you're right. Uh, so when, when Disney buys Junction Point and sets you up with, with Epic Mickey, I mean, is that, is that just a dream come true for you, having watched Disney cartoons and been a fan since you were a little kid? It was absolutely a dream come true. I mean, my... Uh, my mother said, it's about time when I told her I was working for Disney. Um, you know, she didn't say, are you crazy or that's fantastic. It's just, it's about time. But, but let, me, let me tell you the, what I walked away from to join Disney, which may put this in perspective. Yeah. Uh, I was working with a bunch of, of uh, Hollywood directors at that point. I originally created Junction Point because I wanted to collaborate with people in Hollywood. Uh, Hence to, the name. Well, Junction Point. That was one of the reasons why. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, one of the, the I was working with John Woo, the film director John Woo, on a game called Ninja Gold. We created this world together, and he was going to make a movie. We had a film deal, and I was going to make the game. We had a game deal, and um, there came a day when I had to call John Woo <laughs> and say, "John, I'm sorry, I can't do this because I'm about to join Disney." <laughs> you know, and it was. It was a tough. It was a tough decision, but it really wasn't. <laughs> not for not not given everything you just told me. No, 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 no. It wasn't tough. Uh, did you get to cross off any Disney-related bucket list items while you were making that game? Like while you're a part of Disney and and making Epic Mickey, like access to archive props or or art film cells, anything like that? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, there were so many. I got to. I got to hang out in the archives. I got to know the archive people really well. They're, they're phenomenal people. Holy cow. Um, there are seven archives on the, Disney, on the various Disney uh, campuses, and I got to go into every single one of them. Cool. You know? I got to hold things in my hand that you would not believe. You know? um, the, the first time I went into one of the archives, I, I asked, they asked me what I wanted to see, and I said, I'd like to see everything you have from Alice in Wonderland. And they just laughed and laughed and laughed. It was unbelievable because they have so much. I mean, Disney never threw anything out. Um, I got to sneak into the, uh, the tunnels under the ink and paint building where the original Disney morgue was. Wow. That, that became the archives. And uh, found the place where the, the morgue used to be. Um, I, I, my gosh. I mean, I got to go into Walt's apartment at Disneyland. And I, up above, I, that, up above Main, is that Main Street? It's on Main Street yeah. uh, above the fire station. Yeah. I cried like a baby in that room. You can feel the man's presence mm-hmm. in, that, in that room. It's, it's one of the most powerful feelings I've ever had in my life. Uh, I got to uh, uh, give a, a, a presentation in the Hall of Presidents, cool. you know, with all the animatronics, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, there were so many bucket lists. I mean, I got to pitch a game to Bob Iger and John Lasseter for crying out loud. You know, they're, they're, I gave a lecture about storying games at Pixar. Uh, how many how many bucket list items? You know, and there were there's one I will not tell you about, but I I got there was one other one that was uh, was pretty pretty darn special. Uh, maybe, maybe next time. Maybe so next time. Uh, yeah, a lot of people will get in trouble if I tell you about it. <laughs> Fair enough. So how do you feel about Epic Mickey the game in hindsight? You know, it turned out, well, it did get a sequel, but, uh, it, you know, it, it felt like as a gamer that, that uh, you know, the, the Wii had kind of started to tail off a little bit. And So how, how do you, how does, when you think of Epic Mickey now in hindsight, what do you think about? I am so proud of that game. Uh, Deus Ex and Epic Mickey are, without question, the high points of my career. Um, the opportunity to bring Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Walt Disney's first star, back to the world. The fact that that happened in a game. I mean, think about what that says well, about Well, now you, he's, he's every day in California Adventure now. And we did that. Okay, here's, this, is, this is a story I should not tell uh, also, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Please. Um, I just bought a, an Oswald mug. Okay. Okay. And on the back is Hortensia, Oswald's girlfriend. So it's Oswald on one side and Hortensia on the other. And I suspect no one at Disney realizes that we made Hortensia up for our game. (laughs) 
I'm sure people at Disney think Hortensia is a part of Disney's history. No one's checked. No one's checked. We made her up, okay? So the fact that Oswald is back and the fact that Hortensia is now a part of, of Disney's history is because of a video game. Okay, that's, cool. that's, that's very cool. Because of your video game. Because of the video game that my team and I made, <laughs> yes. But the other thing is, uh, I got more fan mail about Epic Mickey than any game I've ever worked on. It was more heartfelt fan mail than any game I've ever worked on. Uh, we touched people in a way that games just never touch people. Uh, I got email from people... Uh, and letters, you know, hard copy letters from people saying that Epic Mickey helped them get through chemotherapy. I had one, there was one kid, uh, we were showing the game at New York Comic Con, and uh, a kid in a wheelchair was rolled up by his dad, uh, and he, was a, he had cerebral palsy, and he was about to go in for surgery, and he asked his dad, he looked at his, he played the game, he had enough dexterity to play the game, and he asked his dad, can I use this as part of my physical therapy? after my surgery. And uh, a little while later, I got a letter from the dad saying his doctor said it would be great physical therapy and it had really helped his son out. But here's the one, I'm going to start crying right now, actually, but here's the one that kills me. Uh, I got a, an envelope uh, in the mail and I opened it up and out came uh, a drawing, a you know, colored pencil drawing of uh, Oswald and Mickey you know, Oswald with his arm around Mickey, Mickey with his arm around Oswald, legs dangling off a cliff, looking up at a starry sky. And it looked like it was, you know, an eight- or nine-year-old you know, kid had drawn it. Yeah. I'm getting chills thinking about this. And then I pulled out the letter inside, and the, the letter was from a father who said, my 16-year-old autistic daughter doesn't interact with the world, but she played your game. And drew this and insisted that I send it to wow. you. She, she engaged with the world because of your game. Screw Metacritic. Screw the gamers who didn't like our camera. You know? Screw everybody. I am, I am really proud of that game. And I am really proud of the team that made it. And nothing is going to ever sway me from feeling like that was one of the high points of my career. I don't suppose you have any... Uh, influence to maybe try and get that game put back out on Switch or, or you know, bring that game forward so that it can sort of try to live on more than, more than being tied to the, the Wii. Unfortunately, you know, Disney, Disney decided they wanted to get out of the game business and Junction Point was kind of the leading edge of a bunch of layoffs and uh, they're, they're a licensing organization now and I, I have they own no it. say. They own it. I have no say in anything that happens at Disney. I'd go back in a heartbeat, actually, if they asked me. But, um, but uh, no, there's nothing I can do about it. So uh, I'm running out of time with you, unfortunately. I want to move quickly and talk about what you're up to now because it's fascinating that, you're, that you're, you've, you've almost come full circle in a lot of ways. Uh, other side, entertainment. You've been persuaded to, to sign on full-time. Uh, System Shock's being remastered. Mm-hmm. And you are actively working on System Shock 3 with Paul and some other original team members. Is that, uh, is that just awesome, or is, is it like, or is it, is it just anxiety of trying to live up to the original? <laughs> no, it's awesome. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've been advising Paul and other side for a couple of years now, and um, one day he came down to Austin and, and um, you know, for, for a, a meeting that had nothing to do with me, but he asked me to come along with him. And while we're, we're sitting there waiting for the meeting to start, he said, you know, I got the rights to System Shock. And, and I said, jokingly, you know, I should make that for you. Yeah, they'd been, the rights had been tied up yeah. com- in a complicated way for a long time. Oh, it right? was insane. And, you know, I, I don't even understand it, so I'm not going to try to explain it. But uh, I was joking. And about two weeks later, he called me back and said, you should make that for me. And I thought about it for, you know, 37 seconds and said, <laughs> well, yeah, sure. You know, I was, I was ready to, to do a, uh, basically a startup studio again, you know. And, uh, so I've been building something from scratch, conceptualizing what a modern-day System Shock game would be uh, and uh, having, a, having a bunch of fun. It's awesome. I, and I, I mean, I have to ask you while you're sitting here with me, how, how's it coming along? Where, where are you at? What are we, where, when can we see it? 
Uh, well, you're not going to see it for a while. I'll tell you that. I I, I used to tell publishers uh, my games take about three years to make, and if I tell you I'm going to make a game in less time than that, I'm probably lying. So uh, it's going to be a while before you see it. Uh, but we're we're in concept phase. It's a very small team. It's you know the lead designer, lead artist, lead programmer, and me. Uh, we're concepting it out, trying to figure out what game to make, pr- building some early prototypes that I wish I could show because they're pretty cool. Hmm. Um, we've uh, come up with one thing that no one in the world has ever seen before, which is one of the rules I have for any game I work on. There has to be at least one thing no one in the world has ever seen in a game. And we we think we've got that nailed. Well, we've got it figured what, what out. What was that for Deus Ex and, and Epic Mickey? Uh, in uh, Deus Ex, it was uh, the uh, well, it was the combination of genres and the uh, the combination of playstyles. Yeah. There had been hints of that before, but but uh, the idea of choice and consequence was was really it. Uh, in in Epic Mickey, it was the ability to um, not just destroy the world, but to bring it back. There had been a, a very few games that had let you destroy geometry. Yeah. But I, at the, I still can't think of another one that lets you bring it back. So that was that was what the heart of that game was, and think I think I know about System Shock Three. <laughs> All right, well that's that's a hell of a teaser. Uh, but you're also you guys are also at work. You're involved with uh, Underworld Ascendant, a spiritual sequel. No, no uh, actual Ultima in this particular case. I guess that's a, it's an EA joint these days. But mm-hmm. uh, Underworld Ascendant, which is a spiritual sequel to. Uh, Ultima Underworld. So, yeah. and and that's is that a little that's a little further along, I believe, right? I, that is. I have seen. It is. Um, it's uh, very close to vertical slice now. Anything you've seen, forget it, because the okay. game has come <laughs> so far. I mean, I the, saw a pretty dungeon. It was yeah, very very pretty. Dungeon. No, you didn't see a pretty dungeon. I'm sorry about you that. You are going. You're going to see a pretty <laughs> dungeon. Uh, Nate Wells, the art director, worked on The Last of Uncharted, Us, and the, yeah. Uncharted, the Bioshock games. Uh, He's uh, really upped everybody's game graphically, let's put it that way. Uh, the game is very close to vertical slice, and if I were a betting man, so don't take this as promise, but yeah. if I were a betting man, I'd say that the, uh, the vertical slice will be released at least to backers, so people might want to go and, uh, and you know, back the game, even though the Kickstarter is long, long <laughs> behind us. Um, so, yeah, that's further along, and the team is, uh, is, is doing a great job. Uh, uh, creating a, a game that will allow players to express themselves through play. Playstyle matters. Excellent. And then up up until you went full time with other side on System Shock, uh, I have to ask you again. I, I know you've got to get out of here, but uh, you were teaching game design yeah. at the University of Texas. So if I take Professor Spector's course, what am I learning? Well, you know, I I built a, a program from scratch for the University of Texas. Yeah. And I looked around. I've been involved with education for, for quite a while and know a lot of the people who are teaching game development uh, around the world. And though many of them are doing a wonderful job, they're all doing essentially the same thing. They're teaching people how to be great game programmers or great game designers or great game artists. And nobody was teaching the skills of, of game development leadership and management. You know, We weren't teaching people how to be game directors. Yeah creative directors, uh, or even producers. And so the focus of the program was uh, how to be a, a game development leader. And you know, it wasn't with the idea that you were going to get out of my program and be the next creative director on you know, Call of Duty Sorry, 72. Sorry, Ken Levine, you're out of here, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Nobody, <laughs> nobody had that expectation. But our, our theory, and it, it's actually panned out in the, the way the careers of our students are, are uh, playing out, um, but what we thought was if we taught you how leaders think, what they do, why they do what they do, how they do what they do, it would make you a better team member, you know, a better individual contributor. And that has actually seemed to, to work. Uh, so you know, we, we took uh, 40 students over two years, and uh, all of them are employed, which is a pretty, nice. good, pretty good record. Uh, and I think you're going to be hearing from many of them in the years to come. Uh, but uh, so if I are you are you still? You're not currently teaching the course. No, is that that, it was when when Paul Nurath came to me and said you <laughs> yeah. should make you should make uh, System Shock. I was joking because I had a full time teaching gig. Yeah, and I left it I, partly because of the opportunity to do System Shock, partly because 
I, I'm sorry, UT, but about halfway through my three-year commitment, I realized that I'm a guy who makes things. And as much as I loved teaching and I loved interacting with the students, I, I wasn't done making games. And so the opportunity to, I, I had to leave to, to make System Shock 3. So I'll leave you with two, last two questions for you, Warren. And, and I'm curious, you know, because you, you've had such an incredible career that's, that you clearly still have plenty in the tank, plenty of ideas. But do you think the game industry is in a better place now than it was earlier in your career as far as, Creativity and developer freedom and, and developer recognition and you know what do you think is the future of AAA gaming? Um, wow, I could get myself in so much trouble. I kind of don't care about the future of AAA gaming. Um, I think the the costs are so high, the teams are so big, the risks are so great that um, we're seeing an awful lot of. Uh, same old, same old with prettier pictures. You know, I, I, I mean, that's a little reductionist, I know, but but I don't see a lot that interests me in the AAA space. Um, I spent uh, spend most of my time at GDC and E3 looking at the indie stuff. Uh, that's where you see the. Have you uh, seen Cuphead? Have I because seen Cuphead? I, I just being such of, a Disney of fan. Of course, I've seen <laughs> Cuphead. I can't wait for Cuphead. Yes, yes, I have. Um, Sorry, I totally cut you off, but I had to, I had to throw perfect, that in. It just popped into my head. Perfectly all right. <laughs> but I, I think you're seeing immense creativity on the indie side. And in that sense, things are way better than they used to be. There didn't used to be an indie scene, you know. And now there are so many ways to make a game. There are so many ways to reach an audience with that game uh, that uh, anybody can make the game of their dreams. I mean, I got the opportunity to make Deus Ex, which was my dream game, but that's because I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Uh, nowadays, um, you know, one person in a, in a garage can be Notch. Or, yeah, two brothers in Canada with making a, a cuphead yeah. and drawing it. But <laughs> Exactly. exactly. Um, so, Last question. I'm just curious. I suspect I already know the answer based on what you've you've already said. But you know, you've said you've you've got more ideas. You've got to make things. Uh, do you see Do you see yourself just continuing to to keep making things forever? Or is there a point where you're gonna you're gonna say, you know what, I've done good. I'm gonna hang it up and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go retire on a beach somewhere. That's an interesting question. Um, I will say I've, I've talked to my students and I've talked to my team about this. I'm I'm one of the few people in the game business who can say what I'm about to say. Um, as you get older, you're, you really do, things change, okay? And I am no longer physically able to uh, work the way I used to. It's, it's, uh, I'm uh, almost ashamed to admit that, but it is a fact. Your body is going to change. Hmm. And um, so I suspect there will come a time when I don't have the physical energy or the emotional energy to continue doing what I'm doing. I hope that time is long in the future. I feel like it is. Yeah. Um, but... Retirement, if or when it comes, is not going to be me sitting on a beach. It's going to be me writing, you know, another novel. I've had one novel published. I want number two. I want it bad. Uh, I'm going to be writing comic books. I, I wrote a bunch of Ducktales comics back in yeah. 2013, and I want to do more of that. You know, uh, so there are still things to be made, uh, even if I'm not making games. But like I said, I think I think the me not making games thing is going to happen far in the future. Well, uh, we look forward to System Shock Three, uh, Underworld Ascendant, everything, everything you've you've still got up uh, rattling around in that head of yours, and, and we'll get to get to play it on a, on a screen at some point. Uh, Warren Spector, thank you so much no, it was for coming. My pleasure. This was, this was an absolute treat for me. Warren Spector, uh, absolute Hall of Fame caliber, legendary game designer. You just heard uh, a, a walking tour of his resume. Uh, for much more. From the best, brightest, most notable minds in the games industry, be sure to check back for new segments from the interviews here on IGN Unfiltered every week and new episodes with new creators every month. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.